Hello everyone, welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles. This is your host, Randy Kim. I am so pumped up to bring to you my two guests for this episode, Sokteri Nak and Lekana Yon, aka Lek, my two good friends in the Kamai American community in Chicago. We are also current board members in the National Cambodian Heritage Museum up in the Chicago Albany Park neighborhood. We shared a ton, I mean a ton, of stories reflecting back on their times growing up in the Chicago Uptown neighborhood, which many Southeast Asian refugees resettled in after the war and genocide. We shared stories on the diaspora and coming to terms with understanding their struggles as 1.5 and second generation Khmer Americans. Lek also shares her recent experience living in Cambodia and coping with her dad's stroke, while Sok Tari shares her experience being a mother of two and teaching them about their culture and history and their first visit as a family to Cambodia this past summer. There was so much ground to cover, and honestly, there was so much more that we weren't able to cover. But I can tell you that I felt inspired after having this memorable conversation among us three. So, I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. Bummy Chronicles, this is Randy Kim, your host. So I am here with two of my good friends, Sokteri Nak and Lekna Ayon. How are you two today? Good. Yeah, so in any okay, case... Okay, tired, but willing <laughs> to do this shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thank you for being on tonight and I'm excited to uh, talk with both of you so to give you a quick introduction I knew both those two uh, through my involvement with the Cambodian American community that they're also very much a part of and they also happen to be fellow colleagues of mine uh, for the National Cambodian Heritage uh, Museum and we all serve as board members, so um, I'm very proud to have both of them on to share their experiences, not just with the board, but also their experiences uh, with their family, talking about the Cambodian American diaspora. And so before I begin, I would like for you to introduce yourself. So who wants to start in? And if you can state your name so we know whose voice your name belongs to. I'll, I'll go, I okay, guess. <laughs> you guys, you, y'all were having a staring contest and see who's going to break. So. Well, actually, it looks, I think, Lit, are you frozen? Yeah, I think she, I think her video is frozen. Oh my goodness. That's all I was trying to figure out. Well, I'm, I'm Sectary. Um, I don't know what else to say, Randy. What, what do I say? Well, let's see. So one of the questions I will ask is, and I think this would be a good question to start is, so our families have all came uh, to the U.S. through Cambodia. And from my experience, uh, well, from my family's background, my dad came from Cambodia to America. My, the rest of my family on my mom and dad's side came from Vietnam. So um, I would say the question is, well, how did your family arrive to Chicago? 
Okay, so we we were refugees who were sponsored here by a white American woman whose name is Marilyn Hennessy. Um, she was, I want to say, middle aged already when she sponsored our family here and many other um, Cambodian families to Chicago, and she is still alive today, but. Um, quite elderly I don't know if that's like the nice way to say it I don't know if she has um uh the recollection you know of like who we are and who our family members are or what her relationship to us is because she she's lost touch with us because we moved a lot we did not stay in Chicago when we first came um but we did move back eventually I mean obviously because we're here now but uh, we and we have been in touch with her in recent years but I, I think she's just she might be old enough now that she might not remember any of that yeah and also how many family members uh, in, in your family escaped to uh, <laughs> escape from Cambodia to the U.S. so um, on my mom's side which is she's the only person I have now because our we, she split from our dad um very early on when we came to the states so I don't know really know that side of the family um but she doesn't have any family here so we we she and I believe she is the second youngest of eight siblings total wow. um and surviving today is just three of them. And the other two, her other two siblings uh, live in Cambodia. So she was the only one who made it here to the United States. Yeah. And uh, look, I was also uh, curious about how your family came to the U.S. Or, well, came to Chicago, shall I say. And also, um, can you give us a little bit of background from of who you are and uh, and also what got you and your family involved in the Cambodian American community, which I'll also ask us a little bit later. All right, family history. Both my parents, my mom and dad, are Cambodian genocide survivor. And we also got sponsored while they were in the refugee camps. Both my mom and dad came Probably 1983 or 1984, we settled in Chicago, and from then on, we've never gone anywhere. We stayed here, like, forever right now. <laughs> the longest, <laughs> one of the longest in my family. Um, so, surviving family, my mom has an older brother and a younger sister. Uh, her older brother did not survive, and her younger sister are, is still in Cambodia, that's her only siblings, so my mom is also like kind of here by herself too. And she has one auntie that came here, but she doesn't live in Chicago with us. She lives in Portland, Oregon. So the relationship and connection is kind of far distance. Uh, for my dad, he, he has a lot of family member too. He's the oldest. My mom, okay, so my mom, she's the middle, she's the middle child, so. Um, she that's her side for my dad he's the oldest he has three sister and two brother mm -hmm. so 
I don't know about the brother that's so the brother that's missing. We don't know if he. We assume he died because we never found him. And uh, his sister, the oldest sister that's right after him, she lives in Cambodia. She's the only one that did not come. And then his other two sister came. His younger brother came. And his mom, which is my grandma, they came. They also came to Chicago. So we came around the same time. Now tracking histories. I think that's, that's of- about it for my dad. Yeah. Only one uncle's missing. It's a lot of zigzagging to uh, whose family members have survived, uh, who hasn't, and who might still be missing. And it's also part of the whole mm-hmm. separation of families discussion and the impact of what it does. Uh, like when I look back on my own ex- family's experiences and their history, there's family members that I still don't know. Um, my dad mm-hmm. has talked to me about the cousins that he had lost or uncles or great uncles or great aunts aunts that have passed on so there's a lot of mystery in our roots and that we are still navigating through and hearing you talk about that uh, gives me chills because we have to keep recollecting about who was saved who wasn't and uh, for Sulk, I was very curious. So I know that you said that you uh, had to move from different places uh, before you got mm-hmm. to Chicago. What age did you arrive in Chicago? I was four and a half when we came in um, the winter of 89. Um, and then we we moved around a bit after I think I started the first or second grade. We started moving around. And then we came back to Chicago in the year 2000, just uh, like a day before freshman year of high school started. Oh, wow. And yeah. where were you living in between the ages of four to uh, freshman year in high school? So our most um, rooted, I would say, location would have been Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And so when you look back um, during those childhood years, what were your early experiences or what memories have stood out to you, especially being uh, Cambodian American um, and living in a lot of, I would assume, uh, in very white areas? Um, Well, growing up, like uh, staying in Milwaukee and Wisconsin, there weren't other Cambodian Americans, but there were other Asians. So the largest population of um, Asians up there would have been Hmong and Lao. So we were able to still kind of like stay true to our Southeast Asian roots by going to the um, Lao temples and participating in their cultural activities. So I did, we growing up instead of um, going to Cambodian dance classes or stuff like that, we went to Lao traditional cultural classes and participated at their local temple and went to their community festivals and cookouts and stuff like that so we were still around um you know kind of it's kind kind of the same culture in the same you know yeah kind of wheel and it kept you know my mom my mom is she can speak fluently Khmer, Lao, Thai and then at that point she was learning Hmong from her um close friends in Wisconsin there 
So it was it was good for her too socially. She's and mastered just, almost every Southeast Asian language. <laughs> yeah, for real. I, I, like all she's missing is Vietnamese. So yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so looking up, you were um we're uh, on the topic of Chicago. I know that Chicago has been the base place for you, and you grew up in Uptown, which is the Southeast Asian. American community there. A lot of the refugees from Southeast Asia came to Uptown, resettled there. Um, it's also on the Chicago North Side. And so when I think of Uptown, even though I did not live there, I lived mostly in the, well, I lived in the Western suburbs, which is about 45 minutes to an hour from Uptown. I had some of my earliest memories. Uh, everything that was associated with Chicago was specifically through Uptown, uh, even the Aragon sign, the Uptown sign. But I remembered very fondly of the the Vietnamese, the Cambodian markets on a Saturday or Sunday and how bustling it was. And I remembered the Cambodian music shops uh, there. I remembered the, uh, the jewelry store that's still around um, and I know that my favorite memory is when my dad would go in there and he'll hit on one of the uh, the store clerks <laughs> when he can get a chance so my dad was kind of a flirt back in the day um, but yeah I remember hating to have to go there each every weekend because those drives were so long this was the days before you know mp3s and uh, games we just sat in the car in traffic with me and my brothers and when we would leave, we would always uh, have, you know, the Vietnamese desserts. Uh, do you remember the soybean drink with the red bottle cap on it? Because mm -hmm. yeah, kind of like sweet soybean oh, milk. God, those were what would keep me from complaining because I hated having to go over there. But yeah. that is what would make me. Uh, that is what would make me handle those trips in a more tolerable manner. So, yeah, so look, and I was just very curious about your own up, uh, upbringing in Uptown, what that was like for you. So pretty much, um, it kind of started as my family settles, like my, both my mom and dad are already together from Cambodia. And coming here, I noticed that they're really active community member, meaning uh, my dad, is like the one that works behind the scene. Like he has to work day and night to support the family. So he's kind of like missing in the picture of like actively in front, but he's really like helping out behind. And then my mom is the care, care like the carrier of the children's, you know, just making sure we get our care, uh, education going on and straighten up with the kids, right? And so she was really actively involved talking to people. And that's how she find out about things that this is happening in the Khmer community. There's Khmer Temple. There's a what? There's a Cambodian associations. And then living in Uptown, there were a lot of Khmer business owners that pretty much connect you to other Asians, Asians, Americans, the refugees and immigrants were building their business there. That's how that connection just worked. Like word of mouth things just happen. And how people, when there's an activities going on, people would just share and we participated. But I think a lot of memories was food. Food, like, I know that I wasn't just eating Khmer food. I was so exposed to Vietnamese food, Chinese food. Mm -hmm. And there was some Laos and Hmong 
that was kind of around too. And then it wasn't just Asian. I noticed that I was exposed to like other cultures too, like Ethiopians was there, Bosnian, Poland. And so it was diverse, like Uptown was diverse and it really exposed me to like an American life. Like I know, like I felt like the Khmer history of the genocide and then the culture was kind of like hidden. It's like my parents would try to expose us like, okay, the like the good thing, like Khmer food, um, the casual, like how they would survive every day, right? Doing Khmer things and um, tradition, cultures, like celebrating, go to the temple, this is what you do, or go to association, you should always be giving to the community, right? You got to build together. So there was like, I felt like I was living life, but there was hidden secret. Untold yeah. thing. That is very real because often like growing up, I didn't remember having much conversations with my dad about how we about how we escaped until much later into my late high school years. And from my mom's side with the Vietnam War, I didn't learn much until actually until at least high school. But as a child, and I was just mentioning about my disdain for Uptown growing up, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I remember about Uptown was that uh, that it wasn't a safe a community. And there was such a reputation that Uptown had that it's gang related, it's gang infested, it's unsafe. And that was always a fear that I had to deal with, you know, growing up from the suburbs. My mom and my both of my parents were very careful for me to not venture out too far away, uh, as well as my brothers. So I was, uh, I was interested in knowing what was the challenges of living in Uptown, but also how much of the issues concerning with uh, safety and um, how much did that play into what you were taught uh, as you were growing up in Uptown? For me, I think it was like depend on ages. The elder, many of them were not, were like just came from like a country that just had a war, like. I those that working with Vietnamese, Cambodians, the elders, or the folks, the folks that was like in the middle age were like organizing a community, like association. There's also Vietnamese association. There's Chinese mutual aid associations, not just Cambodian associations. And there was also Laos community. There was a Laos association, but I noticed, I don't notice they're that active now. But there was that forming. The community was formed to provide service. So that service that was provided, there was also like then there was like probably grant, you know, government service that was covering that allowed people to build that community service to outreach, like let's say elderly service or young people service, like to provide that education, outreach and awareness to not just like preserve their culture, but also bring people together to merge it, like share experience, work together, survive in a community. And that was something that was there, but also the other part was that the young people that was going to school was facing discrimination. So that was another thing too. So like the elders just trying to get through working their life and supporting family. And then the younger people were also processing that. I was like, okay, what the hell is happening? 
I have to live like two life here. I'm living my American life, going to school, speaking English, but then I have to go back, like building a community, trying to speak my own native language. So like the young people were at a more of like trying to figure out ourselves. So that was where territory and gang start to happen. That's among young people where the elder are just not understanding why are young people fighting? We're struggling from the war, trying to survive. Now why do young people build this fighting like territories? And that's where I'm just noticing that, like, through my own eyes, I was like, okay, this is what my young people is going through. We want to be involved with community work, but we have some personal matters that we're trying to deal with. And we're not taught about relationship. Like, growing up, starting to be in our teenage, we're falling in love. We don't know what it is. We're just being told, like, just go to school. Yeah. Don't get pregnant if you're a girl. And then if you're the guys, like, don't get any other woman, like, woman pregnant. Like, the waiter taught us to take responsibility. Just, like, it's so taboo or just, like, so blindfold. Just, like, just do what I tell you. It's not really, like, hands-on or something. Mm, and yeah. and it's, for me, it's a matter of, like, young people also had to make our own decision. There wasn't a lot of mentorship during my teenage year. It started to come out later where the mentorship comes from the folks that was probably like my uncle and auntie age who who's the one in between. Like they were young during the war. They don't understand it. So they're like the border childs. So then when they come, they struggle, they went through it, and then they start to teach the one that are born like I'm born kind of like the eight, late eighty to the early ninety. That's when they were we're more like taught we got a bit mentorship so we're just like oh don't make this mistake now so mm. it's kind of like i know it's like a generation coming down right like our my parents and they're 70 now they're they're just trying to forget about the history and then for my uncle and auntie they're a bit not like they're in a confusing stage of like what happened they're too young to remember and then I'm the I'm in that generation of like American born. Okay, I know there was war. I know that there's struggle, but I need to live my American life like that attitude of mix. Mm. So for me, just to process, it's still an ongoing because again, there's not a really a good record of healing resource. A lot of these are just word of mouth sharing experience to each other and it's just it's hard to share about it because they're mm. i remember like just trying to talk mentally about how i feel just talking about what i think what i feel it was like it was something i shame of so then it's like just kept it to myself and <laughs> i think it was pushed like you be strong fight fight your way or just go along with the pain uh, and and when you do those two things like there's no healing there's no you to give yourself the space to process uh, a lot of these uncertainties and new information that ends up surfacing out of nowhere so um, so when you were coming into Chicago and I know Luck was kind of sharing about her experiences growing up in Uptown now when you were in school in Milwaukee to Chicago, what was, I'd say, the biggest culture shock when you were coming in as a freshman and when you were working or having to have other Southeast Asian classmates? 
Um, well, I would say culture overall was it varied greatly because Milwaukee is very it's a very small city and it's very tight knit and there was um no worry about you know like kids being out late like I walked two miles to school and home every day like by myself or I would take the bus you know at from fifth grade to eighth grade alone all around the city without my mom really worrying about anything and then coming to Chicago it's a huge city Um, and like you said we I started going to after school programming in Uptown and South Whitlet and it's it wasn't you know Uptown is not the uh, gentrified you know place that it is now it's it, it was very nitty-gritty there were definitely people you know on the corner um, a lot more homeless people than there are now people selling drugs doing drugs panhandlers um, and definitely gang and turf wars so it was it was a major culture shock to to have to witness a lot of things that I, I never did growing up in Wisconsin um, and then realizing, you know, my mom ha- having to put in those restrictions that I didn't have before, like, oh, you, you can't travel alone anymore. You can't go to these far off places. You can't be on the bus for two or three hours alone anymore um, just to go meet up with your friends because the city is not safe. Yeah. Look, do you also have that experience from your family as well? Were they also... I know you've kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier, but were your parents even more, or were they doubling down on you as well as you were growing, as you were getting older and as you were starting to make new friends and you wanted to hang out by yourself or with them? Did they also impose those rules on you? So I live in an apartment where it's unit, like a three building connected and it's a bunch of my family. So as parents go to work, there's actually like some grandmas that will watch the kids. So we actually has a curfew, like let's say like once it gets dawn, like six or seven, if you go out, the gate is locked. So if you try to come in, grandma will be there with a stick ready to hit you like, you're coming late, coming late. And then sometimes you will try to climb the fence to get in. (laughs) So it was kind of a community base that I grew up was like, um, the grandmas are there to take care of the a bunch of children so if My not goodness. if we're not going out the children are playing like at the backyard all together so we play like games like hide and seek kick the cans and basketball things like that or sport we will play together still the bank like things like that so it i was kind of growing up with uh already a bunch of kids like we're just like all right parents go off grandmas a bunch of grandmas here to take care of us and then I think we were kind of learning some adult habits of like, um, like gambling. Like the, some parents would just gamble and just drop off their kid with the other kids, and then spend the whole night there. And I just end up just hanging out with other kids. That was during like not school night, but if it start to be school night, it's definitely a lot safety curfew. Like, no, 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 don't go out and. We were kind of watching out for each other, thinking about it. It's like hanging out. Um, the parents would tell the other parents and we're like, 
the kids are friends like well if your kids goes off you know i want um i want like to make sure that they're off okay you know they're they're already checking up on us but yes it was definitely a safety thing but again it's such a big city they lose track of all these kids so that's when they're kind of notice that there's some gang territory something going on some fightings but it was hard to track because it Back then, it was a big my community, and as times goes by, as you know, we move away from each other because it's starting to be expensive. People are starting to build their life a little bit better and get a better job and save money and move off. Yeah, and we were talking about um, school a, a little bit earlier today, and I was also wondering because I didn't grow up uh, around. Khmer, Vietnamese, or other Southeast Asian folks in school, um, but I'm just very curious to know what your interactions were like uh, having Southeast Asian uh, peers as your classmates, and uh, and did you also feel the intense competition from your parents, or this pressure, I should say, from your parents to academically do well in school and to do better than the rest of their friends or relatives? Uh, children and did that have any effect on your relationship with those kids maybe we can go with suck on that one <laughs> i think there's always the um the asian parent competition you know like oh i i want my kid to be the best in everything and succeed and get good grades so i can break to all of my friends and let them know how well my child is doing um, and and for you to also compare, so then later, you know, that they can yell at us and be like, oh, well, you know, I talked to my friend today, and, you know, their son and daughter are doing this, this, and this, and what are you doing with your life? That's kind of how it always was, right? Growing oh, yeah, up as absolutely. an Asian American. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. My dad, well, when we go to a family party's home, any family parties that we have attended to, I used to hate going to them, and I'll tell you why. It's because my dad will look around that kids wall be like there's awards there's certificates there's picture with the teacher which i would just roll my eyes at just looking back on it now and he would just whisper it's like you see that is why he's smarter than you this yeah. is what he's doing to make his parents proud and to me growing up it was hurtful i mean it it, it also like growing up for me it just create this rebellious side in me where it's like you know what I don't think I'm ever gonna please my dad so why should I do it why should right. I right it was very stressful all the time because it's it always kind of seemed like no matter how well you did it was never enough because somebody was always doing better right like I was a straight A student okay I busted my ass I was in AP classes yeah. you know but I but I wasn't um like top rank you know like, it wasn't enough that I had straight A's and good <clears throat> grades and good track record and all my teachers liked me. Why aren't you number one in class? Why is your rank, why are you number seven and not number one? You know, like, it was just never enough. Uh, and look, did you also uh, felt that pressure from your family? I don't think uh, being ranked the best or having the best, be the best in anything was my family um, pressure out here. Because, again, my dad is pretty simple again he's he was a monk he practiced buddhist deeply and it's all about just be the best human being you can be just do good if you do that your karma you know you're creating a sin bad 
Xander Karma coming back to you. So always try to do good. That's all he just pretty much want. For my mom, she kind of compared, but it wasn't a push of like, you better be the best. Like, she was like, all right, you've gone to school, you did good. Uh, as long as you can finish school and be like, build your own future, like get a job or, you know, not struggle in the future, that's fine. So my family didn't struggle. But also, I guess I was too much to keep track because there's, there's eight of us. I'm the, I'm the seven out of eight. And it's hard to keep track probably so it didn't even yeah. matter so lucky on that part yeah so both of you also grew up with the Cambodian Association of Illinois otherwise known as CAI uh, you were going into the after school programs so looking back a CAI has been around for 40 plus years and what can you say about your experiences being in that organization and what that was all like for you. What did you learn uh, from that process, especially being in those after-school programs? And because I know that um, CAI is a social service agency, and a lot of our second-generation folks grew up with that organization as their base. Yeah, I mean, it was just really nice when we came back to Chicago to actually be around other Cambodian people, um, and then them having the after-school youth program and getting not only the you know cultural and artistic programming and classes um but just getting to do it with other cambodian american youth you know uh because even though like having friends with like american friends right at school was not the same your experiences are not the same right because you're you're the refugee kid you're um, the one with the, you know, coming out of families and homes with a lot of PTSD and unaddressed trauma, and you're trying to assimilate, and like nobody else is going to, who's not a Cambodian American kid, is not going to understand, you know, like what you are actually going through, right? So mm-hmm. it was nice to be able to not only have the cultural classes and attend the youth programs with other Cambodian kids, but to also be able to talk to them about, you know, kind of what issues you're having in your home life. Um, And ask them like, Hey, you know, like sometimes my parents freak out when I do this. Are your parents doing that? Is it, is it because they're, you know, Asian parents or is it because they're refugee parents? Is it because they have trauma? Is it because, you know, this, this, and this. So it was really nice to be able to contrast and compare and know that you're not the only one having these experiences. So you didn't feel like so alone. Yeah. Look, anything, uh, anything on that from, from that experience. So how I noticed is that the Cambodian Associate was probably the first of Illinois that was created, like 1976, was noticing that there was a lot of Khmer refugee coming in. So the purpose of it was to provide service for a lot of Khmer to know how to settle down in America, especially in the Chicago area. So the service was fitting, but as it moved less, as to the 90s, it's starting to break the community a little bit because now people kind of integrated themselves a bit better into the community. So now people are looking for a, something a little bit on a different level of not just like, 
all um, want to learn English, we want to get a job, people now kind of want to move on with their leadership skills or interaction of like, okay, let's try to do something else. That's when there's like lots of my events of just like introducing things like health outreach. And I think a little bit open about like a mental health service needed. And that was an ongoing project that that it moves into the in the early the night the early 2000 that was when the idea of the Cambodians American Museum was coming in like okay now people are here but now it's okay to talk about some ex um, those post-trauma experience that survivor have that's when the story was coming in like okay now we'll need this service but that was it took a toll a little bit because it costs a lot of budget and but not only that was that people are not ready for the space the space is not ready so even though the museum existed people are still trying to say feel comfortable of the space so that's where it was beginning where the associations was moving from uptown to albany park because also a lot of Khmer were leaving uptowns, kind of still in the Albany area. So that's why the service moved into that space. So that's also how it happens that when it was moving, I was coming from elementary is like, okay, and done, going to high school. Like that's my teenage year where I recall that that was also me, my time where I was like emotional told, mentally told to, because when I started my freshman year, and then going to sophomore year, I was learning a bit of like the Vietnam War and it triggers me about like, okay, shit, these American people make themselves sound so good. And then there was a little bit part of the Khmer history, but it talked about Khmer Rouge and I was like, where's my parents' story? This is where I start to trigger like, shit, these stuff written down in the book is totally BS. And that was like my search. Like I started searching, like, oh, there's a... Oh, I used to be a part of the Cambodian Association, like being involved in Uptown. Now that's in Albany, that's when I start to go because there was a youth service. That's where I was hanging out with Sateri too and other youth because there was a youth space. And that was kind of my time to kind of process like, holy shit, like I, ha I like hanging out with them. It felt so good because we're Khmer. Like there's some relatable and then kind of a healing moment. It's like, yay, y'all can totally understand me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you... Uh, which also brings me uh, to what I was just thinking about as you were talking about CAI. When I first met you back in 2013, it was the summer of 2013, it was through our mutual friend Stephanie Kamba. And you introduced me, you, you introduced yourself to me. And you were one of the first few Khmer Americans I had been in contact with because most of the time I was. Uh, living in a very predominantly white suburb. I didn't really have many Asian friends until I came to Korea, taught there for a few years. And I had just came back to Chicago not long after. And when I met you, you were, I remember how confident, how brazen you were. And you said, if I remember, you were like, yeah, my name's Lek and I'm also queer and I don't care. This is who I am. And I'm like, looking at you like, damn, I like you. I really like you. And what you didn't realize then was I was still kind of having a hard time being out, being out as queer publicly. And I did not know how to verbalize it. I, I knew I've told people, but I didn't feel comfortable talking about my own identity to our Southeast Asian 
specifically our my American community because I had never been around it. And part of it was because of my own fears of being Vietnamese as well, but also being queer. And I was wondering how you got to that point where you were very unapologetic about it. And the fact that you had been very out, especially when the elders in CAI and also in our own community felt a very strong resistance to hearing that. I say it, start, it started way young. I was a pretty like smart mouth child when I was younger. My mom would always be saying, when someone say something to you, you always talk back with your with your squeaky mouth, even though you don't really know it clearly. So oh. uh, there are times where I have done something. I disrupt the elder. Maybe when they were gambling, I might have done something crazy. A friend would always remind me that, yeah, they were gambling and you start peeing on them. So they stopped playing. And I was like, did I did that? Like, I don't remember. But my friend, like, we told the story. It's like, holy shit. And then there's other things that I would argue back. Like, I was already, like, um, I was already, like, a curious child. Like, you know, I ever... If I'm curious about something, I would ask them questions too, even if they have a hard time explaining. But that was at a younger age. And then as I move on, and then my Khmer wasn't so good. So somehow I just happened to be able to break through it. I spent a lot of times with the elders, probably to pick up the Khmer language, because basically I heard it when I was small, but I don't use it. But as I started to be my teenage, <clears throat> my teenage year, I think being involved, it it pushes me to talk to them with my broken Khmer. I probably said something wrong, but somehow I didn't know it got through. Yeah. And I think it was doing a, I was learning through the mentorship, through like people my uh, older sister age, those that were born in the late 60s and early 70s, they were in the job working service and that's where their mentorship was coming and they talk about like how we can express ourselves, and that's when I'm just starting to talk about like okay something's wrong with the youth service we need some more extra activities we need more field trip I think that's when I start to like you can talk to them and ask for a better like better field trip budget so that we can go out I was like oh yeah. so that was learning how to advocate and organize <laughs> And that was where I just become like, all right, so it's okay to talk to the elder? Yeah. <laughs> I, that was what I was learning that, like, this Asian or this American part of us is like, what? Growing up Asian, we're not supposed to talk back to the elder. If they say do this, do that. Oh, okay. But then, like, learning how to advocate is like, what? <laughs> yeah. And that's where I began to be one of those kind of step up as a leader in there too with Satarian stuff I remember where the elder would okay let's say we were post we want more budget for a field trip and then they would after we well, propose it they reject it it was like that anger inside of us like what you know and it becomes like uh-uh like we gotta make it happen those type of things so I start to build my confidence from there yeah and <laughs> Well, do CAI because I know growing up, especially being young Cambodian women, there's always this resistance from the patriarch of men uh, running the organizations. And I'm not there to, you know, cast a bad light on them, but also to 
at least know that you both and other folks faced a lot of resistance and that a lot of the elders in our community have unhealed trauma. And when you're doing something that's so new and unheard of, it gets kind of scary for them because they're not familiar with it. They don't know how to handle what that is going to look like and what that would turn into, right? So Cambodian Association of Illinois had the, um, will later have the Cambodian Museum, uh, which was opened in 2003. Now, uh, so Terry, I was uh, curious about your own your own uh, relationship with not only just with CAI, which you've already kind of talked about, but with the museum, because not too long after, like several years after, you uh, would become a mother. Uh, you would become a mother of two young daughters who I absolutely adore, who I think they're just <laughs> hilarious. And and when I think about your daughters, um, they also have very interesting backstories because their father is a Korean-American adoptee um, whose, their grandparents are white. And also for your family being um, Khmer-American Ref, refugees, I was curious to know how the CAI, the museum space, became so important to you, not just for you, but for your mother and your um, your two daughters. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's just been a really lovely connection to be able to have, first of all, you know, the Cambodian Association of Illinois, which specializes first and foremost in helping um, my refugees. And then the museum space that came along to preserve the Khmer American or Cambodian, you know, cultural arts and language and music and reading and writing. And it's just, it's, we, we are very lucky, I believe, to have this type of space here in Chicago to be able to go there and take all of the classes that we need you know like growing up you always hear about like like my Chinese friends all have to go to Chinese school on Saturdays and you know now I can say hey you know my kids go to Cambodian school on Saturdays <laughs> and that's what my mom had us uh doing too growing up granted it wasn't always on a Saturday we kind of always had to like be there like after school and stuff too so I remember taking um my dance and reading and writing uh, after school. And that was a very heavy workload that I never um, appreciated or looked forward to. Because, you know, who wants to do eight hours of American school, and then get out, <laughs> and then go do some more. And, you know, Asian Asian school is intense. You know, Khmer school is intense, because your teachers are allowed to, you know, wrap you with rulers and, and yell at you. And, you know, <laughs> just discipline you in in the Asian way um but now that I'm older I appreciate it obviously because it it kept our heritage alive you know the arts and education piece of Cambodia was almost nearly wiped out with the Khmer Rouge era it's what they focus on um destroying first because without 
knowledge, right? You don't have power. So they were very yeah. systematic in that. Um, and to, to be able to, to learn um, these very special arts from our very own artists in residence who we have now at the Cambodian Museum, NISA, is, has been a very special thing to me that I hold near and dear to my heart. And yes. I am just so blessed to have her in my life and my children's lives. And yes. even just sitting in and taking classes and watching the kids take classes with her and to see them form that love and appreciation for their own culture and their own roots. It's just, mm. you know, it, it's, it just makes your heart so full. It does. And one thing I can definitely say about Nisa, uh, Nisa is our resident musician, as uh, as Dr. Uh, pointed out. I'm, thank you for bringing her up because she has been the heart and soul of our community. She's like, she came into Chicago a couple of years ago and has literally been uh, taking the reins and preserving and advancing our cultural history and our arts and and she's an incredible singer. She's very gifted. And yeah, I feel yeah, she, part of she's the not yes. just a singer. She is, she's a master instrumentalist. I mean, she can yes. fluently play the entire contents of a traditional Cambodian orchestra, you know, that's like eight or nine instruments and her own personal instrument, her voice. Like she's, she really, if you've never heard her sing, like you should Google her. She's on Please. YouTube. <laughs> you you can find her on our you know museum website. You can find her on YouTube. It's great. Absolutely, I think it's wonderful. Absolutely, I remember with the Cambodian Museum, uh, what it did for me personally. So a couple of years ago, after Lekana introduced me to the community, which Lekana, I'm always gonna be grateful for that. Uh, so a couple of years ago, there's a there's a story that I've told a few people, and there was a combined New Year event in Uptown in 2016. And Cambodian New Year's is like every, like around April of every year. I remembered um, going into the event, I was coming in as a volunteer. And at that time, I didn't bring my family with me. I was still estranged from my dad. And I remembered it was the first time in at least a decade, if not longer, that I was going into a Cambodian-related space. And there's people with their families. And I was very triggered. And I got very emotional. And so I had to walk out. And I started crying. You know, I felt like, oh, my gosh, I don't feel enough. I don't feel like I even belong here again. So it just kind of opened up these memories uh, for me. And of course, not having my family there, and especially not talking to my dad at that time, it was hurtful because I it told me that I was still not healing from this, that I'm far from that. And my good friend Sabi Charm, uh, who I was talking to on the phone, kept begging me to come back. And I'm very stubborn. Like once I make a decision, that's a no. I'm sticking to it but she wouldn't have at it and she kept wrestling with me to go in and she said please give it another chance and i said okay i will so i went and surprisingly i stayed through the rest of the night and what that did for me was i didn't give up but also because i believe what my friend sabi who's also a fellow cambodian american 
to tell me that, you know, that I belong, that I deserve to be there. And that was very emotional for me. I needed to hear something like that. A couple months later, I would end up getting the call or getting asked to become a board member for the Cambodian Museum, which several months ago, if you were to ask me that, I would have been like, are you nuts? There's no way. I have not been a part of the community that long. But it tells me the last several months prior to it how much I've had to grow and how much I was learning. And so the museum was the springboard for me to understand the root of my dad's pain and the root of my family's pain. And it also taught me to start the process of forgiving myself. So the museum was definitely very big in helping me to start the healing process, but also to find community members that I can trust and talk to. So I'm very thankful for people like the both of you who have been a part of that whole healing process, whether you know it or not, but you know, y'all are very important to me in that. Um, so with that said, uh, Lek, uh, about three years ago, I know that this might not be the easiest topic to bring about, and I know we've talked about it before, um, when I started becoming a board member uh, not too long after, your father um, had a stroke and you were also looking to move to Cambodia uh, not too long afterwards. What did, because I don't want to have to reopen um, or have to make you tell us about what had happened, but when your father became ill, how did that start to affect your um, how did that start to affect your um, the process of moving to Cambodia? So it kind of start way way back. A lot of these things it's it's not just something that just happened all of a sudden it it, it really go back into like some backstory, let's say when I was younger. My parents talk a lot about like, oh, I want to go back to Cambodia. I miss home. I left it with all of a sudden, like forced home. Now I want to go back home. And that was when I was younger. I was like, what is Khmer? Because I didn't know the term Khmer. I, I thought we were, I thought it's just being, I thought we were just being called Cambodians instead of Khmer. That's mm -hmm. how we call ourselves. But Cambodian was colonized name <laughs> for us. So... I was like, oh, so where Khmer? So where, what, what is Sra Khmer? And it's like, it's Cambodia. Oh, like, what do you want to go there? Like, that's home. I was like, really? I never seen Sra Khmer. I was born in Chicago. So it's like, well, birth town, I'm from Chicago. But it's kind of like that kind of like route that I want to identify. Like, um, you know what? My ancestor, my root is Khmer. I someday should go visit Sra Khmer. But it wasn't on my list yet. I wanted to go there. I plan it at such a young age. Like, I'm trying to go back to I plan it at such a young age. I'll go back there once I finish, let's say, high school or college. Because my focus at a young age was all about education. Like, I really want to get... Because it was really implemented in me. Like, because my parents and a lot of people during the genocide lost that those opportunities. So it was pretty much just like, you finish education so you can get a good life. And that was when I was just kind of like, all right... And then hearing some backstory, like my dad's stroke, 
it's a health problem, but it also like some ancestor trauma things that happened during back then when he was in Cambodia. It's either him or like someone in his line, maybe mm. my grandpa or uncle or something might have said something spiritually. Um, well, I don't know how these things are called, but it's like something that was said that it affect the spirit of the country. They they might have said something. So every time when they they trying to go back to that place. Their promise, okay, there it goes. Like, set something in the promise way. If they don't fulfill it, it's like a granite wish, right? It's like, mm -hmm. if you got your wish already, and if you promise that after you get your wishes, you need to fulfill what you said you're going to do. If you're not going to do it, there's going to be bad thing happening. Mm -hmm. So this is still a little bit tracing back. So before my dad had a stroke, it kind of go back to my grandpa. He, he hasn't gone back to Cambodia yet for his whole life living here. He's been away for, more, it says, within 40 years. He wanted to go back home, and he was going to go with my dad. And it's for my dad, it's not his first time. He, it's probably his second or third time going back to Cambodia, but this time he was going to bring my grandpa. But my grandpa was so close to flying back to Cambodia but that few days, all of a sudden he fell and he also had a stroke. Like he fainted wow. and he hurt himself. So he had to go to the hospital. So he couldn't he couldn't go. So it was like saying something to my dad. So now my dad had to fulfill that journey on his own. And um, uh. the grandpa is my dad's uncle. So he's he's my dad brother <laughs> my dad's not like great like great uncle to you great. yeah great uncle yeah. so for that it was crazy after my dad finished his journey he came back a few maybe a few months my great grand uncle passed away wow. and that was a that was interesting because like okay that leads me back into like my story where okay now i'm ready to go live into i'm i'm ready to move to Sukhmai. It's not my first time. I went there 2013, and my first time there 2013, I was about 24. And somehow after going to Strakmai for the first time, I just had that thing where I'm going to live here, but I don't know when. But I was like, I'm going to move here. So three years later, 2016, I'm moving there. So it was really unplanned, but I have a spiritual or ancestor leading thing where I felt like I, I had it since I was young. I always let the spirit talk for me. I was like, all right, now that they want me to go to Sukhmai 2013, okay, I'll fly a trip there. And then I was like, when should I move? 2016? I have a feeling. All right, lead me. Like, I let's, there's something that's leading me. Like, okay, give me a sign, give me a clue. And then as I was trying to go there 2016, my dad was going to take the journey with me. And I was like, oh, great. If dad go, I can learn along with the story as he tells me, you know, this and that. But that was the part where it was so unexpected. It's like it, it just kind of repeated like my dad was going to go with my great grand uncle, but it didn't happen. And now it happens to me. So I was just like, there has to be something repeating. So then I learned from the elders like, oh, there must be a promise that's been granted. Now you the generation, you guys have to do something heal and uh, fulfill that promise that was done so i was like what uh, so my dad started his stroke around september that known for ancestor month ancestors day month yes. so i was like what is that and they're just like that's when the 
gate of hell and the heavens are meeting so the dead the dead spirit comes out and do stuff and that was where it was both like science method of waking my dad up from the coma in the hospital and then spiritual praying like calling his soul to come back into his body because someone said oh his soul is in cambodia he went there and so we had to call him back and i was like I just start observing. I was like, okay, dad, you have 15 days to wake up because the doctor was going to remove his, um, his coma, uh, oh, tubes. The breathing tube. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, we somehow asked for like one more day or a few days. And then we're just like, dad, they're about to remove your tube. Please come, please come. Like calling his name. And it, mm-hmm. that was like that moment. We're just like, he did woke up. Like I was like, if my dad wakes up, I will move to Cambodia, and if there's any healing that needs to be done on this journey, I will help fulfill it as I just let my dad wake up. So I'm not sure it has some part of like uh, our culture believing in spiritual healings or things like that uh, could be part of that. And then his body was just waking up like the sign method. And so that was us starting to get really, really amazed and like interested in learning the Khmer culture especially things that are like supposedly magical or uh, known as unbelievable yeah thank you so much for sharing that and i'm trying not to get emotional hearing that because it, it gives me so much goosebumps but i have not heard that particular uh, story about your father. I'm so glad that he did survive, although it was a very, very difficult journey for your family and for your father to to go through, even to, to this day. Uh, since moving to Cambodia, so you were moving, so you lived in Cambodia from 2016 up until this year of, I think it was July, the late July that you came back. So yeah, it was about a good three years that you were in Cambodia. Do the three-year experience that you were um, going through, what did you learn through that process of having to immerse yourself, especially, you know, being born in America and, you know, having the Khmer heritage in your life, but not having lived in that homeland? What was the whole process like having to assimilate yourself to uh, fit in? So I say being a part of the community has played such a role and I say the Khmer language just pick up easily. I heard it when I was young. I used it when I was young it's just as I went into <laughs> American school had to use English as my primary and then after I came back from Sir in 2013 I was determined to learn the language again so I practiced it I learned how to read and kind of write it a little bit but I realized it comes down again back to when we were younger our parents enrolled us into learning Khmer at a young age but I didn't think I was going to use it but it was really in there in my brain somewhere. So as I start to learn it at a late age, well, not late, but I was in my mid-20, mid-20, like start learning to read it again. I find that I could put the alphabet and stuff 
together better and that I can read it way better when I was younger, just being forced. Like now it's more like, all right, I'm determined to have a goal. I want to know how to read it. So within 2013 and 2016, I was able to read a lot better. So and speak a lot better because in 2013, it's so broken. Like, I don't know. Like, just talking about, I want to eat, I want this, that is so, it's yeah. so hard to explain myself. But um, I can encounter one situation when I went to Sarkwai with my mom. I went, we saw, we saw donut. <laughs> and it's so broken, Kamai. And I told this lady how, like, I want, I want this sweet with the hole. And it's a slang <laughs> term for butthole. Okay, non bahong, and I was like, mm-hmm. Holy shoot, what did I just say wrong? My mom was like, "You will say that? You're talking about your, your, your butthole?" And then people start laughing around you. I was like, "What do you, what do you want?" I was like, "I want a donut." <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know what donut is then, and I had to try to ask for it. Can I buy a donut? It could be a double on. It could be a double entendre. You know, right? <laughs> That's funny. And he's like, no, next time do not say that. I was like, oh, that's why people at the shop were laughing at me. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, they know. They know when we um, have difficulty with the language, right? They can tell that we're not native to there and, and that we didn't grow up speaking it. So they laugh, but they understand. Yeah. yeah, so 2014 was another opportunity. I went to Sukhmai again. For 2013, I went with my sister. I did not go with my parents because I wanted to process Cambodia on my own without them. And then the second time, 2014, have another opportunity, but this time it's with my parents. So that's when they were able to introduce me. Well, like, to, like my mom's side, I got to see her sister. My dad's side, I got to see his sister. So I was... I was at a comfortable level of like finally I got to to meet the family for the first time, so it was kind of like, oh, like oh my god, this person looked like that person, and then I can see where my brother, my sister, or my uncle's getting this from. So it was exciting, so and so I was like ready, like oh man, I really have to move to Cambodia. That's why, as 2016 was coming, I'm there, and again it happened, and then unexpectedly, what all these planning that was happening. I was going to do the journey with my dad, and he went into a coma, and now he has a stroke. But now he's a lot better. He's 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 not back to normal, so he's, like, disabled on his right side. But I'm so glad he woke up. Yeah. And when when he woke up maybe a month or two months before I was going to Cambodia, I was kind of sad that he was in that condition. But I was also, like, have this thing of, like, I healing carrying things I felt like the ancestors talked to me and they chose me to go <laughs> like all right they want me to go find something so I guess I'll spend my time there and people once I left it was really emotional because the last the last thing that happens was I was in the hospital with my mom and dad and we held our hand I was like oh my dad couldn't even talk that time so I was like crying every- he tried crying, and my mom was crying. She's like, okay, let's go in. I remember um, that photo. I remember that photo of you three having your hands together, and I was having in my feels seeing that. And you've been back. And how has the whole process been coming home now? 
So the data I left, I I find that there must, you know, things are planned out for our life within, right? Uh, if things things are already planned, just we don't see it, we don't know what's happening. When my dad woke up, he couldn't talk. I felt like he wanted to tell me something on my journey, but I I was like, I guess I had to go on my own now. I can't ask dad about things, and I, he, knowing him, he would be like, just go. He would. He would not help me back. I know he's a type of person like, go do what you got to do, right? My mom kind of helped a little bit back because she's afraid of my journey. But at the same time, I, I felt like her, my dad, and a lot of elder was ready to let me go because they felt like it, something had to happen. Mm. And for me, I was like, yeah, I'm ready to. Like, I'm ready to take on this Mulan journey and go save my dad <laughs> <laughs> on a mission. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm, I'm comfortable with my, my, not too comfortable, but pretty much communicate and I can read a bit. And now I know that I know my mom and dad relative. As I move into Phnom Penh, I don't know that many people because the relative live in the province. But I knew some friends, actually, because a lot of my students came to America to um, come for school or some short programs that was sponsored by um, the American embassy from there. So that's how I built another relationship. It's like, oh, I knew some Khmer people. Maybe they could help introduce me to this and that. And then just finding out that I'll be fine. Cambodia is like totally different in 2016 from after the war. It's developing uh, a lot better young people are like exposing themselves out there so the connection is a lot easier now for my timing because there's cars <laughs> there's <laughs> technology there's smartphone it's much easier to navigate supposedly what people say back then just going to cambodia it's really hard to get signal call and stuff so i'm at an easy level and sure. when people ask when are you coming back to america i always tell people i don't know when i'm just like whenever the journey is done so while I'm there, I I did have a support relationship. I mean, I was in a relationship with with a person, a Khmer person who's been very supportive of me. So I think that helped too. I wasn't really a on on a lone journey. I actually ended up having someone. But it again, being in relationship wasn't part of my plan. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, I'm gonna go on, and how I met this person, it was kind of interesting because I always say, "Man, I never know anyone like that," and I don't know any kind person like that, like really, like how you say it? Uh, how should I say? It? Like does uh, like follow this five rules of Buddhist practice? Kind of like no love affair, no lying. <laughs> No drinking, whatever. <laughs> no gambling, no drug kind of thing. And then I was like, is there really like a Khmer person like that that exists? So he, I met him in 2013. He approached me. I didn't care. I kind of let him go. But as I, as time goes on, I, did, I just let the relationship go comfortably. And I was like, okay, whatever. I'll just be with him. But being with him, he allowed me to live my life. I go on my journey. Okay, so during during the first few years, oh, when I got there, I pretty much just jumped like, okay, I gotta go see my aunt, my mom's side. Let's go to Kapong Chinang. Whew. 
road trip. And then I was like, but now I have to be fair. I have to go to my dad's side. All right, let's go to your dad's side. Woo, road trip to Thailand. And I was like, darn, so my traveling was exhausting. Yeah. Because they hella charge us for like, I don't have a car then. These coach buses was really part of the excited adventure. Because there's this like, holy shit, these strangers just getting on and they drop you anywhere. Okay. So for me, that was the time where I was like, all right, you live in Strokmai. You just have to go along, but be careful with safety, right? But go along. I just went along. And uh, through when I went to my dad's side, we did a healing thing. I did the ceremony healing for him. So we were praying for him to get better, this and that. And there was this one grandma that we had to find. I had to find her. Um, she wasn't there. She was someone that helped heal my dad from his hometown. And I was like, she's not there. Okay. And I just went out to my life. I started to teach English for the next two years. And, and that was my life, kind of like spending time with children was part of, it was like the best part of my experience, just working with younger children and seeing like this is our future, but also building like work locally with other my teachers and see how people integrate and do their work every day and learn about individual family life. And when I'm not in school teaching, I took the time off to go to a different province and travel to like Kampot, Batabong, Simeriep. Uh, seize upon and then about two years later 20 or three years later 2019 so terry came in <laughs> yeah which i actually was gonna bring that up too and, and so yeah yeah i was just gonna bring up because um you can't beat me to it you've been also playing host to a lot of cambodian american folks who have come into cambodia in those three years Although I'm not, unfortunately, one of those folks. Um, I haven't been to Cambodia yet, but I hopefully we'll do it next year. Crossing my fingers because plans keep changing every time I think about it. But uh, so, so back in July, you and your family, along with your two daughters, went to Cambodia or Surat Khmer for the first time. If if that's if memory serves me. So you went on this journey for about a month, I believe. And I know that you also met Lekana along the way. But I was wondering what was your what was the process of planning that trip like for you and your family? And then uh, what was what were your expectations going into that trip? Well, so my mom had been back um, twice already. So this was her third trip back and for the rest of us, our first trip back. And the rest of us would be me, my youngest brother, who is 23, and my two daughters, who are 9 and 11. Um, I, I didn't know what to expect. I just had always wanted to go back because, you know, one of the main things of being a refugee is not having that place where you can call home or not really knowing, especially as a refugee who was born on land that is not the motherland that you claim or that you come from. You know, it's always been hard for me. I was born, I'm a Cambodian person who was born on Thai soil, who is now, you know, an American, a naturalized citizen. And 
uh, there's always been this this longing, you know, to go back home. Now, I, I, I don't really, I never really knew if that's something that I, sh- that I personally should really be calling it because can you call a place home that you've never been to? I mean, in this case, I feel like maybe home is, is really a feeling, you know, not really a location because even though I had never been to Srokmai, like that I've always known true in my heart is my home and where I am from, right? So I never really knew what to expect and planning wasn't really, you know, I didn't know where we were going or what we were going to do. I was just the money piece in this, you know, me and mom have just been putting up money and saving and that's not really something easy to do as a single parent. Um, And as just generally a low income family overall, you know, like mom and I live together um, and then somehow along the way, all of my siblings managed to move back into the home with us. And it's just very stretched out living. But we got it together in the end and planned this trip. And, um, you know, obviously going back, we had to go and visit whatever remaining family members we had left after the war. And my mom... Here's, here's the funny thing has always, she has always said that she only has one surviving sister and we arrived to freaking Cambodia and she has, um, three siblings, you know, but she, she has never mentioned the other two. And when we were like, okay, cool. Uh, why haven't you ever, you know, acknowledged that you had, um, uh, two brothers, also who survived and she's like yeah i don't like them damn (laughs) just you know you know how my mom is like very very direct just very filtered there just like you know what when everything was going on they never looked for me they never you know because they all got separated and her sister who she loves dearly her older sister um, my own, which is the you know uh, respectful way of saying uh, aunt. It's, it's actually unisex for aunt and uncle, but she is my um, Has I guess always, no matter how many times they got separated, went out of her way to find to track down and find my mother, no matter what was going on. Um, mm. So she has her, you know, obviously in a special place in her heart. Although, you know, I, I can't tell her how to feel about her other siblings, but to me, it's a little harsh to be like, well, y'all should have tried better because if she <laughs> could, you know, track me down, you all could have did that too. So I'll fuck with y'all no more. So, <laughs> but it was nice that she, you know, acknowledged that when we went back on our trip and was like, yeah, that also happened to be your uncle and that's your other uncle, you know, like there's there's more to the story but it was it was just it was everything that I thought it was going to be even though I didn't know that I had expectations you know like I I was finally on Cambodian land I was meeting my family and there was just this instantaneous feeling of just like these are my people. This is my place. Yeah. This is my tribe. This is where I was meant to be and where I should be. And it was just, 
it was love. You know, it was family. It was great. Yeah, you it was. It was... <laughs> you also mentioned part of your trip was you had to put uh, cotton balls in your ears at night. Why is that? Because the bugs take over everything at night. Like I don't know where they are in the morning. Okay, because they're they're just uh-huh. not there. Maybe it was because it's hot and they're smart and they hide, but. They just swarm like and there's and there's just so many different bugs. Like I can't even begin, y'all. It's just things that fly, things that don't, things that crawl, things with segments, just disgusting, creepy, oh. crawly. Um, and and nothing works. Like you buy the special incense, you get the mosquito nets, you you do all these things and, and they just find a way. They find a way and they crawl into all your crevices and they sting you and all this. I mean, I came, I have so many scars now from the Cambodia trip and they're purely physical and from insects. It's terrible. Like, oh, I don't know if my goodness. skin will ever be the same. I just don't know. Okay, because that has given me pause. It's kind of why I'm <laughs> delaying because I have to be prepared. I don't know yeah, if I'm my ready. My family is from the country. Are, are you guys from the countryside? Because if you're like in the city, no. I don't think you have to worry about that as much. No, but we I, are I we're out in the boonies. Like I, I don't have anyone in that side of my family's as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. But I did go to Vietnam. I went to uh, the Khmer Rouge, which is the, which is yeah. part of what was Cambodia, but it's not all part of Vietnam because of French colonization. It's below the Mekong River, and I remembered going there 10 years ago, and I had all these mosquito bites, and I had, like, uh, lotion. I even had that little racket, that tennis racket, which stings mosquitoes, which is kind of amusing to play (laughs) with. But, yeah, I remember there was a lizard uh, in my hotel room, so, and that was in the countryside of my family Mm -hmm. hometown, so, yeah, yeah, I saw a lot more than I'd like to. Yeah, I saw a lot more than I'd like to, but when I was in the city, um, it was very different. It was just super congested, and all I can feel were just the pollution and the annoying buzz of motorcycles at 5 a.m. in the morning because Vietnamese folks like to get up super early and go to bed yeah. and, and be home by 5 p.m. generally. So, yeah, it was it was definitely culture shock. Um, but for your daughters, what was that like for them to experience it? Because I remembered a year ago, I was teasing them like, oh, yeah, you're going to Cambodia. And they were just like not having it. They were frowning. Yeah, I think they, they were just scared. I think what scared them the most was the idea of being on a plane. They had never been on a plane before. But like once we did that, I mean, they loved it. They were, you know, there's a personal screen at every seat. There's nice yep the flight attendants who give you all the snacks you want did you get a lot of miles uh, did you get a lot of good mileage points because i remember oh my God. you must have gone yes yeah yeah i did and yeah yes randy <laughs> you, you taught me well <laughs> you prepared yeah. me for that hopefully um, you have another new trip as a, as a result because of those mileage you accumulated you know i'd love <laughs> to go back just um by myself without no, not that it wasn't lovely going with my family, but you know how that could be. It would be nice to have some, you know, a alone adventure, reflective time. But yeah. the girls loved it. I mean, they they are nature and animal lovers to their core. So they hated the city because it was super congested, super polluted. 
Um, it's you just could not breathe and it was hot and just smelly all the time. But once we got out to the countryside, like once we got home to my mom and my aunt's village, like they were all about it. I mean, the fresh veggies and fruits and um, stray animals, even though like it, 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 I had a little panic attack every time they would like chase a chicken or pick up a stray cat or pick up a stray dog because, you know, there are certain <laughs> diseases and germs and stuff that come with that but they just did not care and thank god like they never got sick while yeah. we were there no one got rabies or anything like that but they were all about it. i mean they were hugging and petting cows and chasing pigs and chickens and wow. taking in all the stray animals and puppies and cats and dogs and picking up lizards i mean they were eating crickets which i didn't even do you know um snails and crabs they were fishing from the rice paddies it was a full like immersive adventure like if we had to like play survivor like they would live oh my god they were just all up life they would just frolic and just make friends with the animals. It seems. Yeah, they had they had a blast. I mean, they were enjoying all the hard work. I mean, you saw some of the videos that yes, I posted up, like, I the did. harvesting and the the drying of the rice and the grinding the rice in the old style, you know, stone mortar to hull it and stuff like that was fucking work that was like two days of work to eat some rice that wasn't i'm sorry not the normal rice that i'm used to Mm. you know like it was it's i need that extremely processed white rice (laughs) that's what i like and that's what tastes good but it's everything was just so much work and it was so hot and at the end of the day like, you were exhausted, but it was, like, a really good exhaustion, you know? Like, you knew you really lived that. And I have to say, like, if it weren't for Lynn, I would not have, like, had any any of my personal food cravings satisfied, satisfied you know? I was... Like by day three, I was so tired, Randy, of rice uh-huh. and fish. Like I would, I wanted to cry. Like I, was I remembered. So depressed. Like yes. I just want to have a greasy hamburger or some pizza <laughs> or any type of semblance to American food, please, Lord Jesus, give me something. <laughs> and then in comes lit, and suddenly we have good pizza and uh, soju and. Flaming hot Cheetos. It was just great. Yeah. She was just like an angel sent from heaven to answer my prayers. Fried chicken. Like- <laughs> Fried oh. chicken. Oh my gosh. And then when we were we were in the countryside, she was like, oh, I'm going to come visit you and your aunt's village. And I'm like, please bring me fried chicken. And she brought fried chicken. It was great. It was so my perfect. Gosh. You were like the genie, uh, Leck. Yeah. Because, I mean, we were there for six weeks. And that's a really, really long time comfort things and food is my fucking comfort thing you know like I need to have good greasy American yeah also um, before we start to wrap up looking back what would you tell your 20 year old self like I was wondering if you want to start that off but yeah what would you say to your 20 year old self now that you've reflected 
and experience so many so much of uh, understanding your own Cambodian American roots and the people that have played a part in who you are. I said I've gotten to the right path being involved with the community. I did not lose touch with the community at all. Even I was involved with school, like my teenage year, I kept in touch with the Cambodian Association, the museum. They had the work there allowed me to actually network out as in like learning how to advocate and organize for our people, for our self healing process and the connection, like building the bridge. I really learned that there was people before me or after I got that mentorship, I stayed around because I wanted to keep it going to that. I could also pass it along to the next. Like there was that mission there, right? To preserve our, not just our, my culture, but as an American of like, how should we survive? in America and that it's okay to l merge those two words. It's not always having to choose. So that's how, as I was a part of the association, the Cambodian Association and the museum, I met so many people. I just kind of became that bridge to just introduce you like, oh yeah, there's this out here. There's that out there. But it, I had trigger moment too, like after being a leader in the Khmer community, how I started to be a leader though, is I, I got triggered when I went to do outreach and advocate work and organizing with other community. I was like, well, the Filipinos community got it strong. The Chinese community got it strong, but the Japanese or, but then it's learning their history. Like, oh, they were here before us. There was already resource built it. And then sometime I would be like the only Khmer representing. I was like, yeah, I'm Khmer. Um, my people are still struggling. We're still working out. And that's when I'm just like, all right, I learned from the other community. Let me bring it back to my community and build it there so that we're ready to continue on with our organizing, advocating and keep the resource there. And as I built more network with our people, that's how I met a lot of us museum board member. That was when and then that was when I'm just kind of like, all right, I'm getting a little bit old. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to step out on my own life and I'm ready to head out to Sukhmai. I'm like, I'm comfortable with a lot of leadership here. So that's where as as I even go to Sukhmai, it never left. I never left the work, really. I was a part of the museum. I kept in touch with y'all. I come in and just like, hey, how's it going? Checking yeah. out with your work. And then at the same time, it's like, all right, I'm in Sukhmai. Who's ever coming? Come on. I want to hang out. So that's how I, so Terry was there. I mean, Randy, you weren't there, but we were still like in touch. Uh, some of our board member, Ming Totla, uh, Ming Vani was there. I got to hang out with them and just, you know, like we were, that relationship was a good check-in. Like when Sateri uh -huh. was there, I, I was there before you a long time, but I still need to check in with like that Khmer American experience. Like, yeah, I'm exposed to lots of Khmer food, but I do understand what you're going through. I do need that American fast food <laughs> and spoiled from like the city life in Chicago. Like, oh my God, I got a good, I got water. I got a roof on top of right, me. Right, right. I got fan, I Coming got air home conditioner. from Cambodia. Internet. You do realize. Phone. Okay. Yeah, and then yes. you get to yeah. Chicago. Convenience. It's not always convenient, even though I said, yeah, there is. There's no such technology. thing as convenience over there. There's nothing convenient toilet. over there. Yeah, like, toilet is, is a big work. deal to Oh, me. my God. <laughs> just taking a shit is work. There's there's just there's nothing convenient about life. There you go. The toilet you life. You know that before you go. 
to the toilet. Yourself. Yes. Uh, the weather what condition. Toilet? That's that's the life. What toilet? There is no the toilet. The weather condition. Like, <sighs> I was probably when I first got there, I was just so much like Terry said, Oh my god, oh my god, I can't do this. And then I was just kind of like starting to be like her daughter. It's like, I can do this, all right, I'll be on adventure. So that's <laughs> That was what I realized is that I never left the work. I never left my community. I've always been a part of it. And I was continue to build the bridge, stay as that, be a part of the bridge and keep connecting with people. And just learning that it's not just us. I, I met so many, not just Khmer American that's trying to go back to Cambodia and learn what's going on and how we can rebuild. Because I met, like there's Khmer from New Zealand, Khmer from Australia. My from Europe, like we're just trying to come back and pick up like what our parents or survivor had left there that still for like the 1970, what was there. I felt like we're kind of going in and kind of work the story, continue it. And that's where the healing begins too as a community. That's that's where I'm looking at a bigger picture of like what's the future of us Khmer out there not just in Cambodia. So it's like an inside of like Khmer born in Cambodia and Khmer born outside of Cam- Cambodia, where are we at? I get to see that. And then at the same time, my personal story was, I was already kind of felt like I'm kind of about time that I'm coming home because I miss family, I miss all of y'all. And that was when another part of it was like, after always being an interactive person and being in relationship with people, I felt like I also focused on myself too as the grounding point or else I will go mentally crazy. So my grounding point was that, all right, how am I doing? I do a check-in on myself and like, I'm ready to go home. So when the timing that Satari was coming, I was also planning to come back home, but I did not know when I was coming back home. I was supposed to come back July 5th before my niece 10th birthday because I'm she's my goddaughter and I wanted to come for my, her birthday, but... I couldn't come home. My flight got canceled because stuff was going on. Protests in Taiwan, the Eva airline. I was like, really, ancestor, you're not letting me come home? (laughs) And I was like, okay, you're not letting me come home? I'll just go, darling, I'm just going to go like to different province. So I went to, I went to visit my mom's side, her sister for one of the last time. I went to visit my dad, relative, his sister one last time. And what's crazy is once I went there, it was also around my birthday. Like, Sateri was there to celebrate with me. That was even great. Like, to have a friend that we've been knowing each other for so long to be a part of this healing process. And then on my birthday, I was at my dad's hometown. And what's interesting was that I was like, okay, I'm back at dad's home base. So my grandma and my two aunt from my dad's side visit me 2017. So we did a healing there. That was the second time. And then I felt like I was giving up. Like, I want to come back home. That last time in 2019 in July. And all suddenly that grandma that I was supposed to look for that was healing my dad. I heard her news. And I was like, is that why they kept me here for the next two weeks? It's like, yeah, she's here. She's like an hour away. I was like, really? So after seeing Sateri one last time before she departed back, I was like, all right, one more journey and I got to go, got to go find that grandma. <laughs> and then I'm just like, okay, so was, I'm like, I'm glad because my two year 
teaching contract was ending and I was like, all right, I guess things are coming, coming together. So I was like, this is so weird. I've been living here for almost three years. I couldn't even find the grandma. Wow. And I suddenly I found yeah. her and she talked about the healing part. Yeah. And I'm looking back now, it's like your 20 year old self would be like, damn, whoa, I have no idea. This is going to be the journey I'm going to step into. But I'm sure that young version of yourself is like, damn, I thought I was ready. I'm, I got so much more to explore. So, so tell me, what would you say to your 20 year old self, especially now that you've acquired all these wonderful experiences, you know, I mean, not that all of the experiences were the easiest to, to go through, but you've had to go through quite a bit in those last uh for the past decade or so so what would you tell your 20 year old self yeah I think I would like to echo lit in the building bridges not burning them I've yeah. always been you know a little feisty a little uh <laughs> really little, I didn't know uh, that I had no idea <laughs> just you know just realizing that everybody has to be um, a lame grown up actually, right? And that was what used to set me off as a younger person, you know, feeling like um, leaders and older people in the community don't understand you and aren't really listening to you and don't have your best interests. And just growing up and realizing that, man, it's it's really hard and and it's not always what it seems on the outside. And I'm sure, you know, there are people who feel about me, how I felt about people in my position at that age. So definitely build bridges and don't burn bridges. Yeah, yeah. I want to say, um, before I let you go, I want to say, uh, please visit www.cambodianmuseum.org. Uh, this is where, this is our official website for the National Cambodian Heritage Museum. Also, visit our Facebook page. You can just go to Cambodian Museum and you'll find us there. Like us, you'll see a lot of our events that are coming up. Uh, I want to say thank you to the both of you. You guys just shared tremendous stories. And I've learned more about, just when I thought I've learned enough about you, or I feel like I have learned uh, this much about you, I feel like I've learned so much more, and I'm so grateful for you to share your stories and uh, bring such important conversations about uh, the Cambodian uh, diaspora and, and the uh, or the Khmer American experience, and just navigating through all of these uh, the difficulties of that journey. So thank you so much, and I'm so glad that you are also on. Um, part of the board because we do need uh, second generation folks to be the caretakers of this uh, history that we have acquired that now fall into our laps and how do we use that history to teach our younger generations. Um, a lot of our adult survivors of the Cambodian genocide which is now it's been close it's about 40 years since the end of the uh, Khmer Rouge uh, regime in 1979. A lot of those adult survivors are now aging. They're in retirement age, and there are folks that we've lost along the way. And now it's up to us to make sure that we get their history 
uh, understand and heal ourselves. So that way we can not only teach our history, but we can find ways to break that intergenerational trauma, that cycle that's, um, that is very cyclical. And it's the hardest thing is to break that cycle is by understanding our history, but also being able to have the opportunity, opportunity to heal. So thank you so much for doing so much incredible work for our community. And yes, feel free to visit the Cambodian Museum. You'll probably see Sokteri and her kids like every weekend. And Lekana, you'll probably be bouncing around every now and then just coming up out of nowhere and uh, saying, hey, I'm Lek. How can I help you? Because <laughs> I, I feel like every time I see you in these community spaces, you just magically pop up out of nowhere and you're ready to, uh, to engage uh, with folks. Engage with <laughs> folks. So, yeah, I, I, I absolutely adore both of you so much. So, so true. Yeah, thank oh, no. you. Thanks, Randy. All right. Thank you, Randy yeah. and Sateri. Yeah, thank yes. you. Thank you. So, have a wonderful evening and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing on this journey with both y'all. Yeah, the after, after thank, you, thank you for, after for having us on. <laughs> yes. Alright. Alright, well, have a wonderful evening. Take care. Later. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Be sure to check out the next episode. In the meantime, please follow me at The Bun Me Chronicles on Facebook, or you can follow me on Instagram at bunmi underscore chronicles. Looking forward to sharing more episodes with you. Thank you.